0: Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss with the Center for Western Priorities thawing out in Denver after some really thick wet snow last weekend.
1: And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City. Today we're talking to Amber Raimondo, Energy Director at the Grand Canyon Trust, and Scott Klo, Environmental Programs Director for the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. We're talking to them about the impacts of uranium mining on the Colorado Plateau, and we'll get to that in a second but let's do the news first.
0: It's been a pretty quiet couple weeks around here, but we did get some good news earlier this week here in Colorado. The Bureau of Land Management issued an updated finding on a controversial limestone quarry located near Glenwood Springs. The quarry's owner was asking BLM to allow the mine to expand its operations from 16 acres to over 300 acres. That would have sent hundreds of trucks going through tiny little Glenwood Springs every day. Also could have, threatened the geothermal water flows, of course, that feed the town's famous hot springs. And BLM just rejected that proposal after several years of back and forth. Now, the interesting thing here, and you'll remember this from a couple of years back on the podcast, that limestone quarry is owned by the son of Norm Brownstein, a extremely politically connected Colorado attorney whose law firm, Brownstein Hyatt-Farber-Schreck, lobbies Congress and the Interior Department. When the quarry first asked BLM if it could expand, David Bernhardt was the Secretary of the Interior, having just gone through the revolving door at Brownstein-Hyatt. He has gone in and out and in and out from the Interior Department to Brownstein-Hyatt over the course of his career. This was, of course, one of many conflicts of interest that Bernhardt faced while serving as the Interior Secretary. It was also one of the most egregious, because it did involve not just Brownstein-Hyatt, but the son of, of Brownstein-Hyatt's founder. So for now, with David Bernhardt out of interior, it looks like that quarry expansion is dead, and folks in Glenwood Springs are breathing a sigh of relief.
1: Our first guest today is Amber Raimondo, Energy Director at the Grand Canyon Trust. She lives in Durango, Colorado, and tracks threats to the Grand Canyon, including uranium. Amber, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Our next guest is Scott Clough, Environmental Programs Director for the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. He lives in Dolores, Colorado, and monitors the effects of the White Mesa uranium mill on the tribe's White Mesa, Utah community. Thank you. Great to be with you. Amber, how long has uranium mining been dormant in the United States, and why is it resuming right now?
2: So uranium mining really only ever was successful in the United States when it had government support. And since the beginning of the 1980s, when that government support sort of fell away, so did uranium mining. And part of the bigger reasons for that is because we just don't have great uh, quality resources in the United States. And so it costs a lot of money to pull uranium out of the ground and actually make it into a product. Um, So essentially, when that when that government support trickled off in the in the 80s and other countries that have higher quality uranium deposits like Canada and Australia started to bring more mines online, that sort of really put a, a damper on U.S. uranium development. And it's been that way for a long time. But recently, kind of starting around 2020, we started seeing more speculative um, interest in uranium, partly because of um the sh- the policy shift in the united states away from fossil fuels and more towards nuclear and at a very simple level people understand that uranium is needed for nuclear power and so that drives up um, interest it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a higher demand for uranium it just means that people are more interested in it it drives the price of uranium up and then um, the i would say the other thing is that in 2022 when russia invaded ukraine and there was a clear desire across the board to give less money to Russia. Um, there's been a, there's been an across the board interest in getting our uranium from other resources or from other from other places. Um, but again, the United States doesn't have that great of uranium resources. So in theory, people want to want to find other resources, and there are mining companies like Energy Fuels that say they can be that source. Uh, but the reality just doesn't match up.
0: So, right now we've got this Pinion Plain mine in northern Arizona that has started production back up. Is there any other actual uranium mining happening right now?
2: So, as far as I'm aware, the only mines that are actually operating are Pinion Plain, the LaSalle complex, and Um, Energy Fuels, other mine, Pandora mine. And so those are are in southeastern Utah. Pinion Plain is in northern Arizona. Um, And really, these are mines that have been developed and established. And so in some ways, their operations can also be looked at as an opportunity for the company to cash out on what's more or less a bad investment.
1: Amber, I'm glad you brought up Energy Fuels. They own not only those three uranium mines that you mentioned, but also the White Mesa Mill. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that company? I know that they've struggled in the past and maybe what this moment means for them.
2: Yeah, I mean, Energy Fuels is a relatively small producer um, compared to, you know, some of the big ones, the big names that people know of in Canada, like Cameco, um, and they've, they've sort of had these these smaller operations just on their docket for years. And so um, when we run into moments like this where there, there is a brief price opportunity, um, it really doesn't surprise me that energy fuels would be trying to at least give the impression that they're going to really ramp up, if not actually try to mine out these small operations that they have. Uh, because... They're costing them money. And so so if 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 there's an opportunity where the price is, is momentarily higher, um it, it makes sense that they would be going that route.
0: Scott, walk us through what is happening and uh, what energy fuels is doing at the White Mesa Mill. What what is the activity there and why does that become so much of a concern for the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe?
3: Yes, as um, as Amber pointed out, the actual milling of uranium ore has not been profitable for a long time. Um, That may change because energy fuels did sell 75 million dollars of yellow cake to the U.S. government last year as part of the strategic uh, uranium reserve. And so that's certainly a boon to them and and gives them an ability uh, financially they didn't have. what they've been doing besides processing uranium ore is processing what are called alternate feed materials. These are uh, feedstock that come from as byproducts of other operations, and they are coming from all over the world, including Japan and Estonia um, and across North America. And um, so these include uh, Superfund wastes, wrap uh, materials. Former uranium military sites and other cleanup efforts, um, where they have materials that um, have radioactive materials, um, including uranium. Uh, there used to be a threshold that uh, they had to actually extract um, uh, profitable uranium to sell out of those materials, but that that is not necessary anymore, um, and. They also have limitations on what they can dispose of, so they have to run some of these materials through their mill to change the de- definition to 11E2 byproduct material to be able to store it forever in their tailings disposal cells. So um, they have been very much in the business of uh, radioactive waste uh, receipt and disposal um, and getting paid handily for that. So. Um, they've diversified their business um, to be very heavy on the alternate feeds. Um, this was started in the mid-90s, so uh, they did get um, license approval to uh, receive and process some of those materials and dispose of them there. Um, but it's, it's increased drastically in the last 10 years. It's been a cornerstone of their business at the mill. They've also been doing some benchtop experiments, uh, dabbling in the rare earth element um, uh, market, um, trying to, to get a, a, a foothold on that market as well.
0: I want to ask about that $75 million yellow cake sale to the National Strategic Reserve. Would that be considered a, like a market rate sale or is that effectively a, a government subsidy to keep energy fuels in
3: business? I'm not sure about a market rate sale. Um, I'm not sure about the context for that. But yes, uh, it's a government subsidy. Um, It's kind of funny because I was talking with our congresswoman who was very adamant about um, uh, the government not uh, choosing winners and losers in private industry. (laughs) And I pointed out that, in fact, uh, that's exactly what is happening with energy fuels.
1: Is that Lauren Bobert?
3: That is our representative.
1: <laughs> um, Amber, I saw you uh, sort of make a face there. I'm, so do you know if this was a subsidized sale? And are there other subsidies for, for uranium coming from the federal government right now?
2: So, yeah. So the Strategic Uranium Reserve was established because the government wanted to be able to buy yellow cake from companies at above market prices because these companies haven't been able to get, haven't been able to sell um, their product because the prices have been so low. So um, while we can't know exactly what the price was that they purchased um, uranium from energy fuels at exactly, uh, in terms of like price per pound, we know that of the $75 million that Congress allocated for the strategic uranium reserve, energy fuels got 18 and a half million of that. And then the 70, the rest of the seventy-five million um, was spread out between, I believe it was seven other operators. Um, Strata Energy was one of them. Um, they did, they sold three hundred thousand pounds to the federal government, um, and all of that again is at above market prices.
1: So, Amber, tell us more about the Pinyon Plain Mine. We mentioned it earlier. It's obviously in the footprint of the New Ita itakukveni National Monument. You mentioned that it it was uh, pre existing before, um, or that it's been active before, and that it's becoming active again. Can you kind of explain why it's allowed to keep producing, even though it's inside of a national monument?
2: Yeah, well, I should be clear. Pinion Plain Mine it's existed since since the '80s. It was approved in 1986, but it actually has never commercially produced ore until this year. So. It sat on, on forest service lands within tr- the traditional cultural uh, property for Havasupai. Um, and it it's, sits within a place that's really significant to more than just the Havasupai, um, several tribes within the region. Um, so, so yeah, the, the mine was approved in 1986. And in 2012, when the Obama administration established a temporary mining ban around the Grand Canyon, including in the area where Pinion Plain Mine now exists. And for the record, it was formerly called Canyon Mine. Um, yeah. Energy Fuels didn't like the negative press that they were getting, and they tried to change Be- the name.
0: Because it is, in fact, right by the Grand Canyon.
2: Yeah, it's 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 within nine miles of South Rim. Yeah. Um, and so the, the mine has been on standby its whole existence. It had a 50-foot hole in the ground for all of the 90s and into the into the 2000s, and it wasn't until 2012 when the Obama administration put in that temporary mining ban that the energy fuels said, "Hey, um, we want to keep mo- we want to keep moving forward with this mine. You have to allow us to do that because we have valid existing rights, which is a, a stipulation under the 1872 mining law. Um, any any mining ban has to allow for previous mines that have valid existing rights to continue moving forward. Um, so." The trust, the Havasupai tribe, and other organizations all filed suit, um, claiming that the the mine does not actually have valid existing rights because one of the requirements of of having valid existing rights is being is that at the time of the the mining ban, that the mine is sitting on top of economically viable deposits. and if if it if sitting on standby for at the time, you know, close to thirty years, and not being able to afford to mine doesn't tell you that it's not an economically feasible operation. Um, I don't know what does, but um, unfortunately, we the 1872 mining law has created an environment where um, things are really, uh, I guess, the, the bar is low for mining companies. And so essentially what the court ultimately decided in, in February of 2022, it was, it was a long time in court, 10 years, um, the court ultimately decided that the sunk costs that went into developing the mine were not something that the company needed to concern themselves with. Um, but they only needed to worry about the the costs and revenues going forward. And so we lost that lawsuit. And because of that, Pinion Plain Mine was able to move forward despite the temporary mining ban and now also because, um, despite the, the new national monument. Walk
0: us through the risks here. Uh, what's so dangerous about a uranium mine being within 9 miles of the southern of the grand canyon and havasupai tribal lands.
2: Yeah. So I mean a uranium mine in general is high risk and there's no way of escaping that risk. Anytime you're dealing with uranium whether it's milling or mining, you're you're creating the potential for some pretty serious problems. Uranium has a half-life in the millions of years. Once you've created a problem, it's not—it's no small deal to to get rid of. That's why we have all of these all of these tribal communities and other communities across the West still dealing with problems from the atomic era. Um, so, so in general, uranium mining is high risk. Around the Grand Canyon, it is especially so. The geology is is very highly fractured, and it's it creates a situation where groundwater systems are, are very complex and difficult to understand. So a highly fractured environment underground means that you can't just do a few studies and understand how groundwater flows and how quickly it gets from point A to point B and exactly where it goes. Um, what we do know from the studies that have been done is that around the Grand Canyon, water can travel from point A to point B in a matter of hours to a matter of days to a matter of thousands of years. Um, we know that water can go from one place in multiple directions at once, and that it can travel, you know, up to at least 25 miles horizontally and several thousand feet vertically. And so, what this means is that when when Energy Fuels put Canyon Mine um, in operation, what they've done is they've Created a conduit for contamination. It was already a conduit just by virtue of the fact that it had been developed and a mine shaft had been dug and groundwater was punctured, and and now there's there's um, you have oxygen and water in in contact with mineralized rock that was dangerous enough. Now that they're operating, they're exposing more mineralized rock and to, to more water and oxygen, and we don't know for a fact that um, that that this mine is going to be safe. In fact, we have a lot of reasons to think it's not going to be safe, that it's going to cause problems for the R aquifer, which is a deep aquifer, um, a regional aquifer on the North and South Rim. Um, And it's the source of water for the um, the Havasupai people down in Subai village. And it's where Havasu Creek flows from it's a groundwater sourced creek. All those beautiful blue turquoise waterfalls that people come from all over the world to visit those are those are at stake and if there is contamination in such a complex environment, it will be impossible to clean it up so it's one thing to say oh we'll 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 catch it we have we have monitoring wells, which we do think they need to have monitoring wells and they need to have more than they have now um, and deeper ones than they have now. But knowing that it's there, if it ever, if it ever shows up, doesn't really do much for you. At that in point, the long it's, run.
0: it's too late because once you're detecting a problem, it's too late to do anything about it.
2: Right, right. So the the major problem with pinion Plain mine has to do with the contamination and depletion of valuable and limited groundwater resources. And the other huge component here is the cultural impact, because the water has cultural significance as well, but so does the land. And the Havasupai people, in particular, have come to this place where the mine is located for centuries. They would conduct ceremonies, um, collect medicine, you know, things that that a lot of folks don't feel comfortable doing now that there's a uranium mine there, desecrating this sacred landscape. So. Um, it it, ha- it has multiple layers of problems.
1: Um Scott going to you now this mine is not all that far from the White Mesa Mill and that is um I imagine where they would bring the uranium that they mill that they mine at the Pinyon Plain mine to be processed. Um is that correct and if so do you have any idea whether that's already happening or when that might happen um and yeah I'll let you answer that. <laughs>
3: Yeah, absolutely. They'll mill it at the White Mesa Mill. That's the plan. We've seen the transportation routes. Um, Those are um, uh, in conflict with Navajo Nation's ban on uranium hauling. Um, uh, But um, yeah, it'll go to White Mesa. um, And um, I wanted to add energy fuels actually was hauling some of the intercepted contaminated groundwater from that mine to White Mesa to dispose of it as a, as a strategy there, um, you know, to reduce the, the groundwater impact. But, um, um, I don't think they're doing that anymore. As far as notification, we are not informed the, the public and the tribe are not informed of ore shipments. Um, And we only find out after the fact. And recently, if there are alternate feed shipments, uh, the state of Utah has agreed to inform us when they get informed by the company that there will be uh, a receipt of alternate feeds. Um, But no, we're not informed. However, um, from that direction, they drive that right through the White Mesa youth community. So we know when the trucks go through but
0: no warning that they are coming. Uh, And is there any sort of monitoring that's happening during that process? Uh, And then also obviously afterwards during the the milling process, what sort of environmental monitoring uh, is happening uh, on tribal lands?
3: Yeah. So on the tribal lands, um, we have an air monitoring station in White Mesa. We we collect uh, uh, particulate samples that we analyze for uranium and uranium decay products. Um, And um, so far, we haven't really measured anything that is alarming. However, most of our monitoring program has existed during a time when they haven't been processing uranium or I mentioned alternate feed processing, but that's very minimal um, as far as what they actually uh, generate for yellow cake on that. And the emissions from the facility um, in the 1980s and 90s um, and the early 2000s when they were processing more ore, they do mill run campaigns where the mill would run 24-7 multiple shifts for, for weeks or months at a time. And um, uh, we haven't really had our air monitoring program operating during uh, full blown mill runs. Um, uh, so, uh, as far as monitoring on tribal lands, um, that, that's what we're doing on air quality. And then, um, we're, uh, doing some groundwater, uh, monitoring as well. We've got a couple little seeps, uh, that, that come out from the borough Canyon aquifer on tribal lands. And then we're doing some work with the U S environmental protection agency in between the mill property and the tribal lands.
1: Scott, um, I know that you guys have had issues with energy fuels before and that you have um, detected different contaminants in some of those um, uh, aquifers under the mill. Um, do you? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And also, what is energy fuels' response to that? Do they take any of this seriously?
3: Yeah, so um, one of the misconceptions out there is that we get our data and they get their data and we're in conflict that way. Mainly our conflict is in the interpretation of the data that's collected at the mill facility. So they have a very, uh, robust self monitoring program there, especially on the groundwater. And, um, uh, when we see the data that are collected, um, and the trends in those data, it's alarming to us. Um, and we try to compel the regulators of the state of Utah to um, regulate it in a manner that actually protects that aquifer. Um, however, we have been on successful at that. Uh, energy Fuels adamantly um, denies that the groundwater is being contaminated by the uranium mill on the site. Uh, that it's being caused by things like uh, the imposition by the state of Utah of increased monitoring, causing oxidation of uh, the formation and the oxidation of pyrite and creative things like that. Uh, They've they've, uh, used drought conditions, concentrating contaminants due to lack of water, They've used uh, groundwater mounding as a result of filling online wildlife ponds as dissolving more contaminants, and so they've sort of uh, grabbed the hold of both of those in the opposite directions: um, more water and less water in the formation. Um, so you know, I, I understand they're they are not going to point a finger at themselves and say we're polluting the groundwater. However, um, they're running out of arguments that are scientifically viable and we don't think those have been scientifically viable another one of our favorites is sorry uh, aaron is uh, is the well construction one so um the the permit requires uh when they have um uh, exceedances of groundwater contaminant limits um that they do a source assessment report and one of the the sources is oh, well, this well was constructed wrong. So what they get is they say, okay, well, drill another well next to it and we'll see what happens. But it buys them two years of monitoring before they have a baseline of data to make any decisions. And so they kick the can down the road for a couple of years with that argument.
0: All right. So, I mean, I think that's a great view of what is happening right now at the very tip of this uranium boom, I guess we'll call it now. But as as Jonathan Thompson pointed out in High Country News, uh, there's very little difference between a boom and a bubble, except you only know it's a bubble once it has burst. We're seeing a lot of interest in uranium activity all across the West right now, thanks to these high prices. But Amber, from where you sit, um, is this, you think, a a long-term threat to prices staying high And or what happens if prices are high for a little bit, a bunch of uranium operations come online and then there's a bust and you've got a bunch of uh, either newly built or half built uranium operations now with no market because uranium prices have collapsed.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think as I kind of said at the outset, the U.S. uranium environment is one that requires government support to be successful, there's just it's just too expensive to kind of fly on its own. And so what we've been seeing is more of a speculative interest in uranium that's driving the prices up. It's not because there's actual demand. If there ever were actual demand, that might change things. If the government subsidizes things more than they have beyond the Strategic Uranium Reserve, that might change things. Um, but the problem that we have repeatedly in the West, is that whether or not there's a real need for uranium or whether or not there's going to be a long-standing um, rush to, to get a bunch of uranium, what ends up happening is that companies go out onto public or tribal lands and they they put a hole in the ground and they create a perpetual problem. And so whether, you know, Pinion Plain Mine, it, it was a problem Uh, before they started operating this year, but now that they're operating, it's going to be an even bigger problem. (laughs) Um, So I think one thing that's just important to keep in mind is that a uranium mine doesn't have to go into full-blown operation to to create a conduit for contamination that communities are going to have to deal with for decades to come. The actual mining part just makes that problem worse. And so whether or not we're in a bubble, I can't say. I would say, but what I can say is that uranium has a terrible record of being able to stand on its own 2 feet in the United States of America. It's just our uranium deposits are too low quality, they cost too much to extract. And so without substantive government support, it's not going to be a long-standing thing. Without real demand, it's not going to be a long-standing thing. And and you know, we talk we talk about nuclear a lot, but The technology is farther than I think many people think it is from being a really viable um, option uh, in terms of like advanced nuclear, et cetera.
1: Right. And that gets to a question I was going to ask you, Amber, which is that um, uranium is obviously hailed by many um, from both sides of the aisle as a clean energy or at least a renewable energy solution. Um, Well, not that renewable, more of a clean I don't know. They say it's a clean energy solution. Um, what do you think about that? Is Do you think there is a responsible way to mine uranium domestically or are the risks just too great?
2: I think if there was a way to mine um, responsibly, we're still a far way. We're still a long ways from it. And I say that in part because the way that uranium is extracted and handled in the United, in the United States, communities are not given... A seat at the table in a substantive way to be able to say, to be able to be heard and say, this is the right place for it and this isn't. Um, because of that, there's just uh, those inherent risks that I was talking about of, that are associated with handling uranium, whether you're mining it or milling it or processing it um, into something in, or enriching it, I, I guess I'm saying, into something like fuel, there's without the public and tribes having a real seat at the table to be able to dictate how how and where and when that happens, I don't think that there's a clean, acceptable way for it to happen. Because otherwise, I mean, where we're at right now, we're we're just taking companies' word for it. And, um, and, you know, the regulatory systems are working with imperfect laws that cannot perfectly control a very high consequence activity. And it just creates a situation where no matter what we do, there are going to be people that pay. And unfortunately, we're in a place where it's the companies who get to say what risk is and isn't acceptable. They're not the ones who are going to be living in these communities, dealing with the consequences of their actions years down the road. It's the the tribes and and the rest of the communities that they're operating around, and those folks don't get a substantive way to say this is unacceptable.
1: Yeah, Scott, I guess you see that up close and personally every day. Um, what is your thought on this? Is it similar to Amber? Do you think there's a way to mine uranium or process it in the U.S. that is that does justify the means?
3: I don't think anyone's done it safely. Uh, it, that's um, you know a, a real tragedy. Especially around this region, um, where you know you've got more than five hundred contaminated sites on the Navajo Nation alone, and and thousands more around this Four Corners region. And um, the latest and greatest technology for extracting uranium for the Earth is the in situ leachate or in situ recovery process, and that's essentially. Uh, injecting chemicals into the earth, bicarbonate-based chemicals to, to dissolve uh, uranium from an underground formation and then pulling it out of the ground, that solution out of the ground with extraction wells, um, you are polluting those aquifers in that process. And that's why the Environmental Protection Agency needs to give an aquifer exemption under the Safe Drinking Water Act They literally need to permit the pollution of the aquifer for that technology. And it doesn't end there. Um, There's in-situ leachate waste streams are delivered to White Mesa for permanent disposal. So uh, we had a shipment of that where uh, uh, apparently a, a truck driver swerved to hit a deer in Wyoming and drip those materials all the way down the highway through Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah on the way to the mill. Um, so no, there's, there's, that's not safe either. Um, and uh, yeah.
1: Um, so let's turn towards the future and sort of how to prevent this from expanding and occurring. Amber, what do you think the long-term solution is to protect the Grand Canyon? Do, do, the monument obviously went a long way towards that, what more needs to be done?
2: In the case of, of Pinion Plain Mine operating, the most near-term option that we have is to just raise awareness around what's being allowed legally to happen um, in a new national monument near the Grand Canyon in a place that for, has been... It's been made clear for 40 years that this mine doesn't belong here, and yet here it is still moving forward because of the legal and regulatory environment that we have in the united states so i think raising awareness is the first thing that we can do and then secondly we really do need to take a hard look at our our legal environment and and the very first thing that needs to happen is that the 1872 mining law needs to be substantively reformed it it, it was developed and created in 1872 it hasn't been substantively revised since it was it was Made to encourage colonialism, and because of that, it really um, hobbles any other environmental law from being able to prevent a hard rock mine like a uranium mine from going into place. And so, I would say awareness is one, and then, um, and then, and then, yeah, revising the the system that we're actually operating within because. Right now, Energy Fuels loves to say that they are in compliance, <laughs> that they use that term all the time. And in compliance is a, is a very, um, in, it, it, it doesn't mean much when you're dealing with the regulatory environment that we're in. Yeah, it clearly doesn't mean safe or
1: operating safely. <laughs> um, Scott, let's go to you to close here. What is the tribe currently doing to push back against the operations going on at the mill, and what more can be done there to to sort of protect the tribe from this pollution that they're being subjected to?
3: Well, we're doing a lot. Um, so we are um, uh, we evaluate the data that's collected, as I mentioned earlier, in the self monitoring program at the mill. And um, we, uh, as I mentioned earlier, also the, the groundwater regulation is not being done in a manner that we feel is protective. And so we are engaged with the state regulators on that front. Um, they are, they have been uh, delayed now for Uh, well over a year and it looks like it's going to be close to two years on, uh, beginning the groundwater permit renewal process. So that's a five year permit that expired, uh, over a year ago and, um, until it's in timely review. So, uh, energy fuels applied for a new permit, which gives them until, uh, the state acts upon it, that the the current permit, um is uh is in effect however what's happened in the last few years is that as they've exceeded the groundwater contaminant limits the state has to respond and take actions and they've relaxed those standards again like amber was saying to maintain compliance so yeah you can be in compliance especially if the state regulators Are relaxing the compliance limits for you to maintain compliance. Um, And the last permit revision, they actually exceeded the relaxed standards before they were implemented. The state had not even implemented the relaxed standards on a few wells before the next quarters of monitoring data had exceeded those for the parameters they were exceeding. So Uh, We have a a startling uh, phenomenon going on with the groundwater there. So we're, um, you know, we're doing what we can in in dialogue with the state of Utah on that. Um, We are also um, working on a research project with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. We're poised to drill four more monitoring wells out there this year. We've already put three in in addition to the two the tribe had before that out there. So we're um, we're studying the groundwater and using techniques to understand groundwater quality and potential impacts from the facility there in in ways that are not being done with the self-monitoring program. So we want our. Um, decisions and what we're trying to compel regulators to do to be done in a sound scientific manner um, and um, that is the cornerstone of what our program does um, with our air, air quality monitoring and our, our groundwater monitoring and uh, w- we had a report that came out uh, in 2023 from the ATSDR Um, We had uh, reached out to them and asked for their help um, in assessing environmental data and whether it could be a a threat to public health. And their report said that based on the data we had, that that it did not seem like there was a threat to public health. So that's that's good news. You know, you know, it's compelling to think about a smoking gun and and responsibility there. But that's good news for the community. However, we're very concerned about the future. We're concerned about what the next mill run has in store and what, uh, you know, the one thing about that report, as I alluded to earlier, is that we weren't collecting data while they were in an intensive mill run on our air quality program. Um, so we'll see what happens when, when they do mill runs, um, and, and, uh, continue to, Base our efforts on sound science. um, We're also very um, concerned about a lack of transparency with our federal government, whether that is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the Department of Energy, or the Environmental Protection Agency, also has a role in some of these decisions relative to the mill. um, And we want to make sure that all of the agencies are held accountable for their decisions and that the public understands all the roles and responsibilities here. So um, yeah, that's another thing we're doing um, outside of the scientific realm.
1: Scott, one quick question for you. You mentioned the ATSDR. What is that?
3: That's the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, and they're a part of the uh, center for, uh, disease control.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you guys both for being here again. We had Amber Raimondo energy director at the grand Canyon trust and Scott Klo, environmental programs director for the Ute mountain Ute tribe. Um, thank you guys again. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. Thanks Kate. Let's end this with some exciting news. The Fort Yuma Ketchin Indian Tribe is calling for the establishment of a new national monument in Southern California. The monument proposal includes almost 400,000 acres near the proposed Chuckwalla National Monument and the recently designated Avikwame National Monument. The land is also adjacent to the Ketchin Indian Tribe's reservation, and the tribe hopes to co-manage the land if the monument is established.
0: I will just note, it's been six months since President Biden has designated a new national monument, so I would say we're due any day now. Time to break out that pen. All right, that is it for us today. Thank you for sticking with us. Please reach out, of course, if you have any thoughts to share about the podcast. Also, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Podcast at westernpriorities.org. That's where to send your emails.
1: Thanks again to Amber and Scott for their time today and thank you for listening to The Landscape.